Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies in beautiful Cape Town, South Africa, at Stellenbosch University. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Yes, and it's been made to been pointed out to me that I always say beautiful Cape Town, and when you're in Johannesburg, I, I, I neglect to say that. So this is not meant as a diss to Johannesburg. It just kind of shows my my <laughs> partisanship towards uh, towards Cape Town and how beautiful I do think Cape Town is. So for yeah, all yeah, Cape Town, Cape Town has its image. <laughs> for all for everybody who lives in Johannesburg, please do not take that as an insult. Uh, so uh, we we do apologize that we are a day late uh, coming out with our podcast this week uh, due to some technical difficulties between Asia and Africa, but we have resolved them temporarily and the internet gods are working with us. So without further ado, we're going to get ahead with our three subjects that we talk about. It's been a particularly busy week uh, in the China-Africa space this past week, uh, especially in the U.S. press. Uh, China-Africa doesn't usually get the the type of headlines that it got in the past week in both the New York Times and the Washington Post. We're going to first start with a very provocative story uh, in that topped the, uh, the front page of the New York Times, Elephants Dying in Epic Frenzy as Ivory Fuels Wars and Profits, which is uh, an article written by Jeffrey Gettleman uh, that really did spark a lot of attention and a lot of discussion on Twitter. We'll talk about that. Uh, then we're going to move over to the Washington Post and an equally provocative article, uh, China's, arms, uh, China's Arms Exports Flooding Sub-Saharan Africa, once again provoking more negative coverage and a, and a very strong response, actually, from the Chinese and from the Global Times newspaper. We'll talk about that. And finally, we're going to shift over to the continent itself. And uh, a, a, I don't know if it's a trend, but it certainly is there's some momentum in the African press um, not sure if this reflects public opinion on the ground, but at least in the press, there is a growing momentum in multiple countries uh, talking about the growing hostility to Chinese traders and small-time merchants uh, in uh, South Africa. We're seeing it in Malawi, Tanzania, Uganda, and Ghana. So we'll talk about that trend as well. So, Kobus, uh, let's start right at the top with the, the most emotionally contentious article, and this was this uh, this piece in The Times by Jeffrey Gettleman, um, and I think the word frenzy was really kind of a very loaded word in that headline. Uh, basically, what this article stated was the fact that China is now the largest purchaser and has been for a long time, but because the Chinese middle class now has the means to purchase ivory in levels never before, it is fueling this demand for ivory and the massive killing of elephants. What was your reaction to this article, and what did it say to you about the public relations challenge that China now has to face in terms of confronting its image in Africa? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a massive challenge for them, you know, because um, I think, you know, one of, one of the stereotypes of China's expansion and China's expansion in Africa has been that China is these, that they're these kind of, uh, you know, rapacious people who can never get enough natural resources and just, you know, that they're greedy, basically. Um, and obviously this kind of plays into it, you know, kind of, but, you know, he, he does have the numbers to back it up. You know, the the, the, the killing of elephants is at an all-time high, or, you know, as and, and is on its way to be, be as high as... Um, during the 1980s, when you know half of the elephant populations in Africa were were poached, so it's depressing. I mean, this made for very depressing reading for me. It was, and uh, I think what was interesting about the piece as well was how the elephant trade is being kind of you know the the money is a cross section of all sorts of African evils, 
from al-Shabaab in Somalia, which is profiting from it, from the, uh, you know, uh, the violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, this is in some ways a, a reminiscent of the blood diamonds and the, the, the money that fueled those conflicts as well. One of the key debates that I got into on Twitter over this was um, over, you know, people, and this really did spark a, a reaction among Americans, a very hostile reaction among a number of Americans who said, why won't these Chinese just stop? And I guess the question, the reaction that I had was, and I think this was a point you brought up, was that the vast majority of Chinese consumers probably do not have any idea as to where ivory comes from. Any more than the average American consumer doesn't really know where the vegetables came from on their dinner plate, that it was probably picked by substandard labor, or the clothes that they're wearing that they bought at, at Walmart was made in a sweatshop, uh, again, by, you know, better than average chance under abusive conditions. You know, this is part of the global supply chain that people just don't know where gold and diamonds and their iPhones and all of these various products come from. So there is some reason to kind of excuse the Chinese consumer at one level. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, we last week when we talked about Yao Ming's, um, you know, anti-ivory campaign, we we found this kind of startling statistic that apparently 70% of Chinese consumers um, don't realize that the elephant actually has to be killed for the ivory to be removed. You know, they probably think of it as a kind of a dentist extraction situation, you know, kind of, um, and, uh, you know, so, and, and apparently, like, you know, in in, um, in studies done among Chinese consumers, the moment that they realize the elephant actually has to be killed and the ivory has to be, you know, hacked out in order to get it out, they, almost 100% of them then say no, that they would then not, not kind of consume ivory um, you know one thing that that uh, was perturbed me a little bit about this about this this piece was um there was a little bit of a kind of a weird overlap for me you know, on the one hand most of the article tended to characterize the Chinese involvement simply as a, providing a market a rich and nouveau rich kind of market that that has an interest in ivory but then there was also talk about Africa-based Asian-run criminal networks you know and talks of of kind of you know you know, for example, Chinese fishing boats kind of meeting, um, meeting, you know, kind of these, these ivory hunters in, in uh, at ports like Mombasa or Somalia, you know, kind of to, to kind of to transfer the, the tusks to ship them to Asia. And I was kind of, you know, I was a little disappointed but you know um, that that he couldn't actually give us a little bit more of a, of a portrait of how those networks actually work and who runs them. But I'm guessing that would be very difficult to do. Oh, I think that's almost impossible to figure out from you know f from a journalistic point of view. But yeah, I, think, I mean, for me, the lasting the, the the importance of these kinds of articles. I think that these types of articles go such a long way to shape people's perceptions of the Chinese in Africa. Um, and again, you and I, we, and I think it's very important to emphasize this, have no partisanship between the Americans, the Chinese, the Europeans, Africans. That's not the point. And the point is not to come to the defense of the Chinese, but rather to, if I was a public relations consultant to the Chinese, I don't know if I'd be spending quite so much money on CCTV Africa, and I would spend more time trying to be able to put out a counter story to this. Um, now, let's just kind of talk about what the Chinese are doing. They uh, you go into any of the major airports in China now, and there is very visible campaign saying ivory is against the law to import. They do show, you know, they do have a public awareness campaign. My, the problem and the critique that I have is it's nowhere near enough. Um, they have to get a hold of this or else it will be China is killing Dumbo. And that is the, yeah. you know, the idea in the Western mind about that. Now, what's interesting, too, and this was another part of the discussion that I got into with some folks on Twitter was, you know, 
you know, this, what you said, the rapacious Chinese kind of, you know, attack on Africa. And it still comes down to the fact that context is important here, that you and I have talked about this in a number of different occasions, that the scale of Chinese investment in Africa, even in the natural resources sector, is still less than Western companies. So, and, you know, and bear in mind, too, that Chinese overall consumption and the Chinese overall carbon footprint, even though they are now the largest polluter in the world, uh, on a per capita basis is a small fraction of what it is in the West. So I think that is yes. something very yeah. important to keep that context. Now, that said, that doesn't help the elephants and the, rhino- and the rhinos that are suffering here. But yeah. when we talk about this, I do think that context is important. And that will come up again in our next story as well. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing is also that, you know, kind of, I think what one thing that the article did really well is to actually um, show how U.S. aid, um, particularly U.S. military aid, is, is actually fueling this, you know, this kind of the hunting and poaching of elephants. You know, kind of the, the Ugandan army has, be, has been, you know, particularly kind of pointed out, you know, kind of that Ugandan military helicopters are frequently used um, as part of this of, of this poaching, you know, kind of, and that frequently, this is a, this is a, a way that uh, that these soldiers um, who get paid very little actually stay alive. If you know, so you have a weird situation where terrorist organizations like uh, the Lord's Resistance Army, you know, kind of, um, as is, is using poaching the same way as they used blood diamonds in the past. As, as a kind of a funding mechanism. And, you know, so you see, you know, kind of Joseph Coney, for example, now being seen as that ivory is now Joseph Coney's last kind of straw that he's grasping at. But at the same time, more, more elephants frequently in the same areas are being hunted by, you know, kind of by soldiers that are actually directly supported by the United States, particularly Ugandan soldiers. You know, kind of, and I mean, Uganda, Uganda has gotten a lot of military aid from America. So it's kind of really complicated, murky, horrible situation, you know, kind of where the, 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 the people, you know, the, the parties that keep losing are the elephants. Yeah, I mean, the elephants seem like they are going to continue to lose here. A couple more facts that make this a little more difficult. Uh, not all ivory trade is actually illegal, and this is what complicates no. the whole situation as well. There is an international treaty to export uh, legal shipments of ivory. Uh, so that's number one, is separating the contraband from the legal is not always easy. Number two is that although this article did, you know, center on China, China is by no means the only country in the world that consumes ivory. Vietnam, India, uh, and some other Asian countries are also big consumers of ivory as well. So that isn't one one fact to kind of take. But I think the conclusion, the very sad conclusion here, is that at the end of the day, um, given that ivory now is worth more per ounce than gold, um, the demand is there, and uh, it looks like they will hunt the supply until there are no more. I mean, there's no, there's not a really an optimistic way to end this story for the elephants, and it just seems like, you know, they'll have to, you know, otherwise, it, it, maybe there'll be some, you know, very highly protected reserves in countries that have, sustain, you know, enough, like in South Africa and Kenya that have a tourism business that can protect the elephants, but in places like the DRC, there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I see is that it, it, that is that demand, but two things have to be attacked. Demand has to be attacked in China, and then, um, you know, and, and ivory just has to be made to seem old-fashioned and evil, you know. Um, and then, on the other hand, you know, kind of the, the kind of the transit ports where the, these these tusks are shipped from have to be up, updated and upgraded, you know, kind of, but the problem is, like, you know, one of, one of the main ones is, um, is in Somalia, you know, which is just impossible to police anyway. Um, You know, but but a port like Mombasa, you know, only like less than 10% of all the crates that leave Mombasa are actually inspected, you know, kind of, um, you know, if you can actually improve that situation, then that would already help. 
Yeah, I mean, really, the the best hope for the elephants is shark fins and what happened with Yao Ming and shark fin soup. And that he really did successfully lead a campaign to stop the consumption of shark fin soup and uh, to protect sharks. So let's hope that that actually happens with elephants. Well, let's move on to our second topic. And this one is equally uh, pessimistic for the Chinese, uh, one that, again, I think requires some context. This is the Washington Post article, uh, China's arms exports flooding sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, this one kind of rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. And I posted on Twitter, and we also opened a discussion up on our Facebook page. Uh, that Facebook page, of course, is 13,000 strong in the community at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, I opened up the conversation there, and people were understandably pissed off. I mean, people were saying, you know, and this has been a long-held African argument that we don't make the weapons. It's always the foreigners that bring the weapons into Africa. Fair enough. That is absolutely true. However... Uh, the United States and Russia remain the world's largest arms suppliers. China is sixth overall. Now, the growth in Africa has been very, very high. But still, China is the sixth largest arms supplier in Africa. So I just felt like this that they buried that fact very, very deep in the story. And that was, to me, the context that was missing here. It was why wasn't more attention paid to the United States and the arms that it sells into Africa? Because the scale and the volume of weapons that it brings onto the continent is far greater than what we see from the Chinese. And the final point before I'll turn it over to you is I think the objection in Africa may be, though, is that the Chinese are selling small arms as opposed to kind of large weapon systems, which is what the Americans sell, and that might be the objectionable factor here. Kobus, when you read this article in the Post, um, one of the murky factors, and we talked about this with the ivory, is the fact that the Chinese may not in fact actually know or directly be selling to Africans, but it's going through third and fourth parties, or state-run companies may have their own agenda, which is entirely separate from the governments. We saw this in Libya, of course, uh, towards the end of Muammar Gaddafi's uh, tenure. So what, uh, what was your kind of take on, on this story? Yeah, I have to say the story was problematic for me in a few ways. You know, kind of, I, it was one of those situations where you read a paragraph and you think, okay, maybe I should just go on to the next paragraph because this one isn't working. You know, um, because for example, like they um, at some stage they they talk about um, they're saying that um, China accounts for twenty five percent of the market of this of the African market, not including South Africa. So. You know, so which percentage then does it does it do does does it account for when it does include South Africa? And does it are we talking about, for example, excluding South Africa as a buyer of arms or as a producer of arms because they're both? Um, you know, so it's it's just the the way that that certain of these facts were put were very I, I find kind of unconvincing and, and quite kind of muddled. Um, and then, as you said, you know, kind of the. It's not put into 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 the perspective of of you know kind of of, of U.S. arms trade to Africa you know kind of and then when uh, when China Daily you know responded to this a few days later they really put it in that yeah context. they really you know, let they them really have went it all out. <laughs> I mean let me read you for a little bit from uh, this is by uh, Han Shudong in uh, in Global Times. Uh, he called the, the accusations in the, in the Washington Post groundless and irresponsible. And one of the main points that he makes is the fact that he really challenged this idea that was central in the article that Chinese weapons 
are illegally bypassing UN sanctions, and that was really one of the key areas. Um, and and he refutes that point by point here. So um, so let's see here. Let me read one point here. China has a rather small share in the global arms market, according to the U.S. Congressional Research Service. In 2011, China's arms trade only made up three percent of the global total volume, um, and that uh, according to the report, U.S. arms sales amounted to 66.3 billion dollars. So really putting that pressure back onto the U.S., um, where I, I, I mean, I don't think the Chinese are unworthy of scrutiny. I mean, certainly if Chinese weapons are making it past U.N. sanctions, then they deserve criticism for that. I don't believe that Chinese, uh, you know, checks and balances on their weapon sales are as tight as they should be if, if they're there at all. I do think these state-run companies have agendas of their own, which sometimes run in con- conflict with their national agenda. But that said, I think the, con- the article was, to me, uh, not entirely balanced by putting it in the proper perspective with the Americans. Yeah, you know, kind of, and I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it, it, it kind of rubs one the wrong way. In, in the first place, it rubs me the wrong way that, that there's this kind of assumption in the article that, well, the U.S. is the biggest seller. And then, obviously, second, Russia. But number three is Germany. Number four is France. And number five is the U.K. So, you know, it's completely Western European, except for Russia, it's completely Western European-based, you know, kind of the, except for the, for the U.S. and Russia. And so there's this kind of assumption that, oh, it's okay for them. You know, yeah, kind of to sell it. I, I, it was almost um, they you know, brushed kind of, over China them. Does, yeah. it's, a, it's an outrage, you know. It's, um, yeah, I mean, again, on the other it, hand, it yeah. sounds like we're being apologists for the Chinese, and, and I don't want to come off that way. I think what you and I are both saying is that the Chinese deserve this scrutiny, but so do the Germans, and so do the Russians, and so do the French. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And more, even more than the than the people selling, I think other people buying. Like, I, I find go. it really problematic that, you know, kind of that no one is questioning, like, who is who is buying this? You know, I remember, like, at some stage, kind of um, tweeting that, um, I think, I think it was... Gabon, Cameroon, I can't remember, um, you know, kind of bought a bunch of, of fighter planes from China. Yeah. And I'm like, why do they need fighter planes? Like, you know, kind of what, what, in what kind of world is this a necessary and kind of wise investment for this particular poor African country to make? You know, it's like, it's, you know, kind of, I think these purchases need to be really much, hit much harder. Well, let's, let's, let's turn, this is again another theme of our show here which is, you know, Africa as victim here. It's as if the arms are being sold, you know, forcibly sold to African leaders. Um, You know, it does take two to tango here. Now, can people in Africa hold their own governments to account? And I think that you see in Africa, a lot of the frustration is that people cannot hold their own leaders to account. So they direct their, their frustration and their anger to outside powers, which is, again, partially legitimate, but not entirely. Yeah, and there's also I think you frequently find in the case of African African governments that they that um, big weapon systems and flashy kind of new weapons infrastructure kind of they, they carry a certain kind of status. You know, kind of it's it's part on it's it's on your kind of presidential shopping list together with a sho- with a soccer stadium and a big road you know running east west through the capital. You know, kind of is a submarine and, and so on. You know, um, and and I think that kind of um, that kind of status seeking. Complex also needs to be attacked, you know, and the only people who can really attack them are Africans. Yeah, I mean, it's like the poaching. This is an issue that the Chinese, I think, if they are serious about Africa in the long run, will have to get a hold of. I mean, one of the interesting dynamics in, in you know, in the conflict in the Sudans is that as the Chinese are trying to keep the two parties, uh, you know, apart, so in order to protect its own investments there, 
um, it, you know, Chinese state-run uh, weapons companies are actually selling weapons and fueling that conflict. So, so there is some contradiction in the Chinese policy, and they're going to have to get a hold of that. But again, one of the problems that people make when, when thinking about China is they, they oftentimes make the mistake that China is this kind of highly centralized, highly efficient uh, kind of, you know, single entity body that everything's under control. Uh, we, we know from anybody with any amount of experience in China knows firsthand that the right hand and the left hand most of the time don't know what's going on. And there's a, it's very, very decentralized. So it is entirely possible. And I think the article did not kind of make this point. When you speak of China, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the government? Are you talking about the state-run companies? Even within the government, there are highly powerful factions that pursue their own agendas independent of the central party. So I think that, that adds some complexity to it, but again, not meant to, to excuse. Final thoughts on this issue? Yeah, I think, you know, just finally, I think one of the interesting points that came out of the article is that um, China also has a kind of a philosophical opposition to sanctions. Um, you know, so, you know, part of the implication in the article, and I'd love to hear kind of, um, you know, kind of political scientists and so on to talk, and China experts to talk about that a little bit more, is that there's a kind of a passive aggressive kind of undermining of UN arms embargoes in China, rather than actively breaking them, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's more things of like budgets get cut and you know it's just like there's foot dragging you know kind of from China um, simply because they feel that they after after the Tiananmen you know kind of uh, disaster that they were subject to sanctions and um, and therefore that they they don't you know they just don't support sanctions yeah, as a, as a method um, and yeah and, and that I think is very interesting um, you know and it's interesting to, to see how that will impact on China's kind of a, you know taking on a bigger role in the international community in the future. Uh, well, continuing with our theme today of, you know, terrible Chinese press in Africa, uh, there really has been a spate and, uh, of articles that, that focus in on the Chinese merchants and Chinese traders. And again, it's, it's very difficult for especially people in my position who are not on the ground to kind of separate the, the, the noise from the signal. So let's talk, let's kind of put a little bit of context here for what we're talking about. This really all began about five or six months ago when Malawi... Uh, instituted uh, a, a series of rather harsh uh, policies against Chinese merchants. That then sparked coverage of that policy. And then it started to spread to Tanzania, to Uganda, to Kenya, to, uh, you know, really up and down, you know, eastern, central, and southern Africa, to this, re they're zeroing in on this, uh, the, you know, this idea of Chinese merchants are stealing local South African jobs. Uh, so one of the articles that really caught our attention this past week was, uh, in the uh, in the business day business day business times, Chris Barron uh, yes. wrote uh, how China bleeds South Africa dry. And again, we're getting these very provocative headlines, which are just fantastic. They catch the eye. Uh, then uh, a couple days later, Erin, uh, which is the uh, United Nations news service, that's a humanitarian news service, they wrote uh, increasing hostility towards Chinese traders. And then uh, we saw in Fin24, which is another South African website, Chinese knock for local jobs. Now, that's only a small selection of, of what I counted to be about 10 different articles that came out in the past week uh, across multiple countries focusing in on Chinese merchants. What's going on here, Kobus? Well, the hook for the South African articles is a study that came out recently from the University of East Anglia that said that cheap, cheap Chinese imports have cost South Africa 77,000 jobs. 
Now, I'm not 100% sure how they got to that number, um, but, you know, kind of the South African press has been jumping on that number. Um, and, you know, kind of in South Africa, you need to see it in context in South Africa is that um, to a certain extent the Business Day, although the Business Day, I think, is generally, you know, generally the Business Day is a very respected newspaper. Um, and they, they tend to keep themselves very, you know, kind of above the fray. But um, Fin24 is part of a company that's, that's pretty, um, very critical of the government of the ANC government, um, and they um, they tend to, um, the, the, the tone that I picked up from the article is that it's a little bit of an attack on the government via the Chinese. Yeah. So they're not only attacking the Chinese per se, they're attacking the, the South African ANC government's close links to China. Um, you know, and um, and via that, so, you know, they always make the point that South African, um, that these investments, in the case of these articles, these are not small traders, but actually small factories set up by China. Chinese uh, investors um, who they now have found mostly employed Chinese Chinese workers and not not as many South African workers and they they use this to you know they always make very, make the point um, over and over that oh that this this investment was made with support of the government it was made by these different government departments you know actively courted this investment you know at trade fairs in China and um, you know and i.e. the government of China they're kind of like you know two peas in the pod yeah and uh, one one point that I think that Chris Barron did not bring up uh, is the fact that, you know, although these cheap, low-cost Chinese imports uh, are, are most certainly uh, displacing South African jobs and, and other, you know, uh, workers around uh, around Southern Africa, but at the same time, one has to remember that there's two, two edges to this sword. Uh, that also means that consumers um, have access to low-cost products. Uh, that it means that there's more choice for consumers. I mean, I sound like a free trader here, but this is one of the benefits of, of globalization. And this is something that I saw on the ground, uh, both in Egypt and in, in, in the Congo, was, you know, people with very, very little disposable income now had a range of, of, of products that were available to them that had never been available before the Chinese came. So I think that is, that is the flip side of the argument that really wasn't mentioned, that it, particularly in recessionary times, uh, low-cost uh, products do contain inflation, and they also offer more goods and allow people to spend more uh, with, with fewer dollars. So I think that's the flip yeah. side of it. Now, just one I mean, I would go even further than that, actually, because in the case of South Africa, you know, kind of South Africa has always, since apartheid, South Africa has always been a monopoly economy. Every single kind of micro niche of the South African com economy is pretty much as is either one or two big companies that, that rule it. Um, and frequently, you know, kind of once once you kind of start researching their, their corporate ownership, you find that in different ways that they actually are corporate siblings rather than real competitors. So, you know, kind of, I would not be surprised if, um, you know, kind of, if if you find a situation where um, where some of the critics uh, of of this kind of investment are in very convoluted ways actually you know kind of invested um, you know kind of in an investment family with with some of the kind of you know conglomerates that run part some of these you know some of these sectors in, in the economy that's that's how it works in South Africa um, you know so you know you you find this kind of like you know, very stung reaction to kind of Chinese reaction frequently, I think, you know, because of those kind of economic links. Yeah, and I think that at the same time, too, that uh, South Africa is really a different case than the rest of the continent, in part because the the power and the strength of the trade unions that are there, and they have mobilized and put China in their sights. So I think that is, uh, you know, another factor to be considered specifically about South Africa. One other point to, to bring up here is, is something that was a point made by 
Howard French, the journalist and the author that we've talked about on a number of occasions on this show. And he brought up this very interesting point with the fact that, you know, for the average Namibian who who sees that their Chinese are moving into the hair salon space, which for a lot of, of women is really one of the only businesses accessible to them, and they see the Chinese coming into this space, well, that presents, you know, a direct form of competition. And those women or those citizens and those small entrepreneurs, when they begin to mobilize, present a very, very powerful and potent domestic political force that the government then can turn to and say, look, we are doing something without at the same time compromising the big dollar investments that the government officials are often lining their pockets with through corruption and through other deals that they're making with the Chinese. So it it can be very, very safe for the governments to crack down on the small merchants. Another point that I thought was very interesting that French made was uh, soon, very, very soon, if we're not already there, Um, This will become a moot point, in part because the numbers of Chinese immigrants in Africa will will become so large that there is nothing that anybody can do to control this. That is, it will not be, they will be beyond the reach of the Chinese government if, if they're not already. And at the same time, there will simply be too many in Africa for local African governments to actually have any other policy short of expulsion, which we don't think will happen in this day and age. We won't see an Idi Amin style uh, expulsion. So at this point, when the population gets to a certain critical mass, it will be almost impossible for them to really implement, uh, short of using, again, apartheid or, or expulsion kind of uh, tactics, which I find hard to believe. But this is a, a clear reflection, as you indicated, of the frustrations that people are having, uh, whether or not they are targeted specifically towards the Chinese or they reflect a broader, deeper frustration with the government. It's, it's really hard to tell. Yeah, I think it's also, you know, what's what's critically needed here is is more honest and more detailed reporting about the actual kind of economic links that that these that these Chinese communities actually create here, um, because frequently, you know, kind of in in, in the South African case, a lot of the Chinese people have moved out of small trading, among other reasons, because they because the profit margins are so narrow, but also because um, because they they sense that there is some pushback from the local community and they moved into wholesale so they are all of the, the kind of African you know South African born South Africans um, who are traders who are small traders frequently they trade Chinese made goods that they buy from Chinese um, you know um, uh, wholesalers and um, so the Chinese actually moved into a niche that had not been they didn't displace anyone from that niche they create basically created a new niche they created a new kind of uh, you know kind of mezzanine level kind of in the economy um, and you know and, and in the process, they are, you know, kind of supplying, you know, kind of a whole a very wide range of goods to, to you know, to actual South African traders. And, uh, you know, as, as far as I understand, that's happening in other parts of Africa as well. Um, so the, the, the kind of they taking out jobs kind of, uh, you know, debate is frequently really, uh, you know, very overstated, very oversimplified. But how much of this do you think is also, and again, let's, let's kind of keep South Africa out of this in part because of South Africa's rather distinctive racial history, but how much of this also is just the fact that we're and now entering a new multicultural phase uh, in Africa and that people oftentimes at the lowest bottom, the lowest part of the totem pole, uh, do enter into conflict with one another, which is a very common uh, occurrence anywhere in the world. So how much of this is, is you know, specifically towards the Chinese? How much of this is a battle of, of resources amongst the poorest? And how much of this is just, you know, an emerging multiculturalism where people are getting used to being around each other? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is one of my bugbears, you know, is that 
you know, in Africa, there's there's no, I would say, zero percent articulation of of African racism against other people. You know, um, and uh, you know, simply, you know, it's it's just simply that's something that's just not articulated. It's something that people don't don't think about. Um, you know, kind of when when racism is discussed, it's almost always discussed as coming from the other side. And of course, because of South Africa's awful history, that is particularly so in South Africa. Um, but you know the I think, you know, in the past we talked about how to do the, the different views of to which extent the Chinese are integrating into these communities. Obviously, there's, there's views that the Chinese are all huddled in, you know, in compounds and never never speak to anyone. And then other views that they're actually quite kind of integrated. And I think it depends on which Chinese you're talking about. There you go. There's not um, a single Chinese. Uh, yeah. Saying the Chinese as a single entity is simply too large. And yeah, and I mean, you know, that that's gonna. I think that's gonna really, really be a crucial factor. You know, kind of the the, the more used that you know, the more Africans will get used to actual Chinese on a day to day basis. You know, that that's that's the key. Um, the other issue, though, is that you know, is to which extent the civil space in African countries, the civic space, is is strong enough to actually. Um, develop a kind of a, a multiculturalism, you know, kind of because you know that that I think is is the bigger problem. It's you know kind of it's frequently difficult for Africans to really think of themselves as citizens of a country first, you know, kind of they think of they, they have other kind of ways that they that they define their own, own identities, um, and those ways that their identities are defined are they, they're frequently very you know not particularly uh, amenable to cosmopolitanism. It's not easy to kind of make your way into those groups if you're not if you weren't born there, yeah. um, and particularly if you also don't speak the language, like, you know, kind of like a lot, a lot of Chinese migrants, you know, don't. So it, it depends on African countries developing, you know, new visions of citizenship and new visions of, of cosmopolitanism. And I think that, yeah, I mean, that takes a while. And, and don't forget that the second generation of Chinese immigrants in, uh, in Africa is starting to arrive. So the, you know, people who migrated here 10 years ago and whatnot are starting to have children. Their children are becoming local. Localized, uh, so this this issue is going to morph into a whole new different phase when you have both localized, you know, Chinese chi- ethnically Chinese children, and you also have mixed race children as well. So that will kind of move into a different phase when you have this number of people, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand to a million Chinese who now live in Africa. You're going to start morphing into that phase. But I think this is indicative, uh, you know, of the fact that we seem to be, if you just go by the press coverage alone this past week you know, entering into a new phase in the public perceptions of the Chinese in Africa. I think the Chinese honeymoon in Africa is now, we can officially call it, over and dead. Um, the, the rest of the world, I mean, Hillary Clinton and, and Tony Blair uh, and a number of other leaders have been banging the drums, but now the press seems to be really coming around to this and, and saying, you know, what's going on here? Now, again, I think, you know, the more light we shed on this issue, that's great. But at the end of the day, too, there's a lot of pent-up hostility and doubt and suspicion towards the Chinese in Africa. What are your, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on the theme of this show that we did today in the, in the articles? And, and does it have any broader representation? Or was this just a coincidence that we had, you know, three overtly hostile themes and, and topics in, in very prominent, you know, coverage? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think it can't be an accident. I think that's that's kind of where we're heading at the moment. Um, you know, the the problem is, is the, the difficulty of the difficulty that China faces in actually taking hold of their own message, and actually, you know, kind of getting you know creating their own images. Um, and I think one one problem of that, uh, you know, inherent to the Chinese system is that the 
obviously, you know, if, if you look at America, for example, or, or in another case, Japan, um, you know, kind of their, their mediascape is, incre- is, is, is almost 100% um, private sector, you know, kind of, so there's, there's an, an incredible amount of messages, different kind of contradictory um, pop culture kind of entertainment and all, news and all kinds of different messages that are that kind of being pumped out of the country in one go. In China, the media is still so much more um, state-owned um, and so much more, you know, state-directed. State um, and the, the kind of crazy free-for-all media that happens in China, which there is a lot of, that tends to happen in Chinese. Um, you know, so the English language media coming out of China is generally state-owned. Um, and that just frequently means it's boring it's you so know kind bad. of the, the, oh, the, there's no glamour so painfully bad but i mean imagine if we had like a live aid style concert to save the elephants and you had bono and peter gabriel and it was the chinese that put it on i mean you know they get that kind of attention but the problem is is that you know chinese media managers are just so close-minded and they just won't release control and they just they have this very very narrow way of looking at the world and and that's what limits them and they can't react fast um what i see here like you is we're in a different phase this can't be a coincidence the chinese have to do a better job at telling their story if they want to kind of rival this um and if they don't they're just going to get chewed alive i mean uh, to me that's just you know they're going to be the next bp if they're not already i mean for a lot of people you know the chinese are the embodiment of evil but um, you know at least on this africa story they have a good story to tell and it's getting buried um they also have some terrible yeah. things that they have to confront listen the weapons and the elephants and the rhinos are legitimate you know they got to do something about this there is no doubt that shame 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 um, but they also have a, a good story that's getting buried here. So, well, listen, that's it for this, uh, this, for this edition of the show. What we're going to do is we're going to take the conversation now and kind of shift it to our Facebook page. These are all three very, very provocative stories. Uh, Anne Sherbin, who is our Facebook uh, moderator and manager, she's now fully settled in at Tsinghua University in Beijing, and she's going to rejoin us on the page. We'd love to hear what you think on these stories. We'd love to hear if you think that China has entered into a new phase in its engagement in Africa. Is the press being fair in its coverage? Um, if Is the press not, you know, maybe they, what do you think? Do you disagree? Do you agree with us? We'd love to have that conversation with you. In the meantime, Kobus, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? I am at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. I've been a bit quiet on Twitter in the last two weeks because I've been crazy busy, but I'm I'm getting back. Okay, hopefully we'll get uh, get you back out there. And then you can also follow me. I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, and I'm tweeting almost every day three to four stories on the top China-Africa headlines, and I'm posting kind of all sides of these various stories, so the Chinese, the Western side, different articles about uh, from African press. And then you can also find me on our Facebook page where I'm engaging quite a bit and doing a lot of comments uh, with various uh, members of the community. Uh, And if you've missed any of our past shows, uh, I encourage you also to go to our Facebook page. We've got a little tab there. It's in orange. It says SoundCloud, and it's got the past 25 different shows of of our podcast. So if you'd like to catch up with some archive editions, it's there. And of course, you can find us over on iTunes, and we hope that you'll leave a comment on iTunes because that does help us move up in the Apple ecosystem so that more people can see us. And finally, we're also on Stitcher and SoundCloud. So we're trying to be a little bit everywhere. Uh, but for this week, that's all the time we've got for it. We will be get, uh, back again, hopefully on Sunday, with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Talk to you next week. 